This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. We're going to be talking to Brian Hammack on today's podcast. Recorded this way back when in early 2018. Now Brian's a pretty experienced investor and it's kind of interesting to note that he's not actually investing these days. He's kind of just sitting on the sidelines just waiting around. He's got his own podcast at the Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. You guys can check out too. He actually sells insurance on the side. I think that's also how he makes extra income on the side. Make sure you guys sign up for the Who You Do Pipeline Club by going to Simple Passive Cashflow Backslash Club. We just closed a couple deals recently, uh, one in Atlanta and one in Huntsville. And I think, I think the days of Dallas are a little bit over in terms of apartments. And I'm also looking for that next deal. So if you guys have, know any good operators in the self storage or mobile home and park space, please let me know. Maybe I can check them out, get to know them a little bit. And I enjoy the podcast. Are you absolutely bored at social gatherings because everyone is super passionate about their J-O-B or too shameful to get naked and talk about their finances? Been drinking the simple passive cash flow latte? Got your own coffee parcel? And feeling a little lonely? Re-engage with friends by sending them to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash start or text the word SIMPLE to 314-665-1767 to begin the free web course, The Journey to Simple Passive Cashflow, so that they can get back up to speed with financial independence and investing. Again, join the web course, The Journey to Simple Passive Cashflow. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash start or text the word simple to 314-665-1767. Remember, if you don't tell them now about it, who are you going to have a midday lunch with when everyone else is at the day job? Hey guys, it's Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Please go to the website and sign up for the weekly newsletters and uh, get updates whenever I post a new video or a new podcast. And also, if you guys are interested in deals coming up, uh, sign up for the Hui Deal Pipeline Club. You're going to have to fill out that questionnaire and uh, give me a little bit, some of your information so I know what you're looking for. And also sign up for a free call with me, and maybe we can point you forward in this, uh, this, this new year coming up. And uh, today, I got Brian Hammerk on the line. How's it doing, Brian? Doing great, Lane. Yeah, so Brian is another podcast host. He works for the Rental Property Association, RPOA. He has a podcast called the Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. A lot of SEO there for that good title. I uh, I was a listener to your podcast, still am, and uh, we got to know each other. And currently, Brian is an owner of 450 units, and I uh, thought we'd bring him on the line and share his story. So uh, thanks for coming on here, Brian. And the first question that we ask everybody on the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast is, how much Simple Passive cash flow are you making and how are you doing it? Uh, well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, first of all, let me correct you. I, I don't have 450 units anymore. I sold, I sold a 71-unit apartment building about a year ago. So I'm down about 370, 380 units. And uh, as far as cash flow goes, um, let me let me put it this way. I am probably making about at this point about fifty percent of what I was making when I had a job. 
And, and I had a very good, very good paying job that, that I left about three or four years ago and I transitioned completely to real estate investing. So I'm making about half of what I was making then. But as you know, it's not always about the cash flow. Once you've owned these properties for a while, uh, there are certain paydays that come along. And, and those paydays include uh, when you get to the end of a loan term and you do a cash out refi. Um, the market has been so good that, that uh, th- those paydays have, have really uh, helped supplement my income. Uh, also, I, I've syndicated as well, and I've, I've put, uh, which is putting together uh, investments in multifamily and apartment deals. And as a syndicator, you get paid acquisition fees, and then also you partake in some of the equity and the profits from the, the properties as well. So with the paydays that come along, you know, once or twice a year, as well as the cash flow, I'm, I'm more than exceeding the, the income that I was actually making at my job. Awesome. And I think you bring up a really good point. You know, in the first couple of years of making this podcast, I've really preached, you know, cash flow being the most important thing, but sort of an advanced topic like you bring up is that, you know, you can create cash flow based on appreciation. I mean, I would rather have $20,000 today than $500 of passive cash flow uh, every month, you know, right? Because I know how to grow that money. Or people think binary, they think either what's more important, cash flow or appreciation. But, you know, if you can transfer one into the other, they're both equally important. It kind of depends. Yeah, absolutely. They, they work hand in hand. And, and truthfully, you would think, you know, even when I had 450 units, and like I said, I sold, sold 70 of those units. But even then, the cash flow, it, it, is, it takes a long time for that cash flow to really build up. Because in the beginning, when you first own a property, uh, you're improving that property. A lot of your cash flow is going back into it. So it's not like you're going to buy something and then within two years be living off of the cash flow from it. Uh, a lot of that money keeps going back into it. There's unexpected expenses. Uh, not to mention if you have a mortgage, that's taking up anywhere from 15 to, to 30% of your cash flow or, or net operating income. And uh, it really, it's those paydays that, that, help even more so than the cash flow. All right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe if we um, define it as like the cash flow is what kind of keeps you afloat and keeps you around till those paydays come around. It's kind of like entrepreneurship. They say like, you just got to stick around until you get lucky. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll give you an example. So we, we bought a, uh, uh, a multifamily. It was about 37 units. So I guess really it's an apartment complex, about 37 units here. And we bought it back in 2009 and it was a short sale. We paid $600,000 for it. And within about four, three or four years, we had improved it to the point where we were able to cash out refi. And its value was about 1.1 million at that point. And uh, we cash out refied. We were able to pull out just more, a little bit more than what we had actually put into it. So we would put 25% down. Uh, with what we had borrowed, we'd, we'd put about $150,000 down. And we were able to pull out within four years about 200000 So at that point, we no longer had any money in the deal and we're getting an infinite return. So the cash flow we were getting was, was creating an infinite return for us. Uh, and, that, and that cash flow was probably, depending on the year and um, you know, how much money we were putting back into the property and capital improvements, 
it was probably putting somewhere around twenty to forty thousand dollars in our pockets, uh, and I have one other investor in that deal with me, and and that's that's pretty good. Um, but we are also now about to do another cash out refinance on it, and its value has shot up to over one point five million dollars. So we'll be pulling out probably another three to four hundred thousand dollars out of that property, and so that's a nice payday. And it's also, um, when you look at it, because it is a loan, it's not necessarily income that will be taxed on. I mean, you and I were talking about how deals are very scarce today. And it seems like you're definitely taking money off the table. And that's something a lot of other listeners are doing. You know, they've, they've been in this game a few years and they've had some nice run-ups and maybe, uh, maybe they sell some of their rental properties. I know personally, I'm selling all my turnkey rentals, um, and uh, going to cash for a little bit, and and as good deals arise, I put it into that. I mean, are you are you kind of sitting on cash for the next downturn, or are you just still looking, just be more patient? Well, <laughs> that's that, you know what, that's an excellent question because I I'm, I'm kind of uh, bipolar when it comes to that topic. Uh, for a while, yes, I was sitting sitting on cash, waiting for the next downturn. Recently, probably in the past year, I've realized, you know what, when that next downturn comes, it's not going to look anything like what we experienced in 2008. I'm not even sure that it's going to affect the real estate market in any sizable way. I think we'll see a blip and maybe values will come down. But I think when you look at the demographic trends and just the lack of of housing that is available and is, is predicted or projected to be available. Rental, owning rental property is still a very solid pr- proposition. Um, what I've had a problem with is that currently I see people way overpaying for rental property to the point where I don't see how they're going to be cash flow positive for the next couple of years because they're just paying too much. Um, so that has caused me to kind of step back and, and sit on the fence and on the sidelines and watch as people overpay. And I think that maybe there's some opportunity there. Uh, when those people get in trouble, I can come in and pick them up for maybe a, a little less than what they paid for them. But I don't, I'm not even counting on that anymore. So in the past year, I've started looking at other opportunities. And as, uh, in the past year, I've invested as a silent investor for the first time in an office building. Uh, I've invested in some notes, uh, non-performing notes. And I'm also investing in a self-storage facility right now. Totally on board with you and the, the multifamily still being the core. But yeah, it's just, uh, it's interesting to hear what other people are doing in this kind of environment. Because, I mean, you, you kind of set out one of the greatest apartment run-ups in, from 2014 to 2016. And that was a great couple of years. Well, well yeah. So I had bought, I bought a couple properties and. Um, well, actually, some of my larger properties were bought in 2014 and 2015. Luckily, I took advantage of the very beginning of the run-up. And I do feel that I lucked out, and I call it luck, because I, I started investing in 2008. And then it was very much a, a buyer's market. I mean, the market had tanked. And between 2008 and 2011, you could just pick up things for penny on a, pennies on a dollar. And it, it really did not even though I like to think I, I know what I'm doing and I do know I know what I'm doing, it really didn't take any skill to make a profit off of those properties if you held them 
uh, took care of them and, and had good management, uh, taking care of the properties and the, and the tenants. Anything that you purchase between 2008, 2011, uh, it just has skyrocketed in value since then. Right. And I'll say it, you know, you could be an idiot and make money in 2000, in the last couple of years in apartments. It's just, you know, I'm seeing some of it. I'm, I'm valuing some of the deals that people are doing, you know, to bring it to the folks. But like, you know, some of the assumptions they're using are just ridiculous. Like, you know, what they're using on expenses and what they're using on, you know, rent projections, just a little crazy. Well, you know, it, it's really hard to say because anytime I try to predict what's going to happen in the future, I'm usually wrong. But I do think that we've seen the majority of the run-up in values and rent increases. I think that we have seen that happen. Um, I think what we're going to experience, and I say I think, because I, I don't know. I don't know for sure. But I, what, I, what I expect to experience is sort of a plateauing of that increase in rents. I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we've seen just huge rent increases. What, what was renting for $450 five years ago is now renting for $900 to $1,000. You know, it's, it, it, it's a huge increase, but I think that we have wrung a lot of that excess out and, and now it's going to plateau because we're seeing it already in Grand Rapids. Uh, residents are rejecting the higher rents. And people are having to lower their rents in order to uh, to keep the same class of, and, and quality of resident. Right. And yeah, the second that, I mean, I'm looking at like Texas, for example, one of the hottest markets out there for job growth and population growth. And, you know, Toolbox Tim, you know, he, he was used to paying 500 bucks for his apartment a few years ago. Now he's paying, like you said, $750, $800. And that's that's the question. Can Toolbox Tim afford that higher rent? And I think he's kind of getting capped out. Yeah, I would agree. I, I would say that Toolbox Tim can't and won't and that uh, it's, it's people are start, owners and, and rental property owners are starting to realize, hey, I need to, you know, I, I need to stay competitive. I can't just keep raising rents uh, and charging exorbitant rents. I need to, uh, you know, keep my units filled. <laughs> so, yeah. So it, it, but it, it's also timing too. I mean, we're going into the, the holidays right now. It's harder to find renters. Maybe things will pick up in March, April, May, you know, as they typically do. So we'll, we'll see. Right. Yeah. I know the, the big data houses are just kind of predicting very conservative rent increases of like one to 2% in the next few years. All the kids these days are investing in the latest fad like tech or cryptocurrency. If I had learned anything these past few years watching the wealthy is that they invest in the most boring stuff and the basic commodities. What is more of a necessity than coffee? To learn more about this boring investment, check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash coffee. But uh, Brian, let's, uh, let's kind of get back into your backstory because I think that's where a lot of people draw a lot of information out of it. Um, what's your Han Solo moment? And for you don't know the Han Solo moments when him and his buddy Chewbacca from Star Wars were cruising around the galaxy as little smugglers, but then crossed paths with Luke and Leia and their life took a pivot point. Describe uh, the resistance in your life where you kind of moved to this change uh, for uh, real estate investing. <laughs> from from when I was uh, just a simple smuggler with my, my uh, Chewbacca, Wookiee sidekick. Right, um, just trying to get by at the WT job, just getting, trying not to get fired. Yeah. Um, well, I, I had, I had a very good job. I, I spent, um, 
20 years in movie marketing. So I was living in Los Angeles. This was around 2000. And I, I had invested in, yeah, I was making very good money. I was single at the time. And I really didn't know what to do with my money. But I knew, hey, I should probably start investing it so it will grow. And I went to one of the large brokerages who had a, a financial advisor who put me in a lot of high load funds. And um, this was right before the, um, the tech bubble burst in 2000. So I was, was heavily invested in, in tech funds and mutual funds. And these were high load. And when I say high load, 4 to 5% of what I was putting in was going directly to my financial advisor and her company. Um, but I didn't know any better. So when the bubble burst and my, my mutual funds and my, my tech funds and everything tanked, I realized, wow, I, I really need to sort of take the reins of my own investing here and, and not allow a salesperson essentially to, to invest my money for me. And that's when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I'm sure you've heard that, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of our guests have, that, that was the, the turning point was reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, and for me, I didn't read it. I, I uh, listened to it on tape. I had, um, I listened to it on tape and it was, it was uh, really eye opening. And I said, you know what, I need to start investing in real estate. But I lived in Los Angeles at the time. And even though the economy had sort of tanked, uh, rental property was, was being sold at a cash flow negative position. So you couldn't, you, you, for what you would pay for any rental property, you'd pretty much be cash flow negative uh, unless you were investing in like a C or D neighborhood. And you were really investing for appreciation. Now, Looking back, had I known, I would have invested for appreciation because the appreciation between 2000, 2001, and 2006, 2007 was just astronomical. I'd, I'd be a you know, multi, multi-millionaire by now, right. but, but I wasn't going to invest for cash flow negative. So I, I started plugging into different, um, different systems, and there was a network in Los Angeles at the time that was investing in out-of-state single-family homes in good, good cities, good neighborhoods, and you could get into them uh, for anywhere from $1,000 to $10,000 down. And I bought seven of these in New Mexico, North Carolina, and South Carolina, uh, mostly single-family homes, a couple condos. And that was sort of my entree into real estate investing and, and cash flow. But to, to go on from there, what has happened, I've since sold all those properties off. And I realized that even though I had out-of-state management taking care of them, the, the headaches that they gave me just were not worth whatever profit I might have made. I think at, at the end of the day, if you add in the tax benefits of the losses that I took on some of those properties, uh, maybe I broke even. Uh, it's certainly from an investment standpoint was not the, the best thing to do, but it did get the ball rolling as far as real estate is concerned. And I think that having, having had a good job and needing to take a, a passive position in real estate investing, uh, it, it was a good way to get the ball rolling and to really uh, get some experience. And that experience led to then ultimately in 2008 investing in multifamily and apartments. And that's where things really started to take off. Right. And I, I've been having a lot of calls with people and, you know, the conversation is always as such that 
you know, they listen to the, these podcasts and they're like, well, I'm not going to go right to multifamily. But I'm like, you know, it's kind of like going straight to the NBA, which you can't do these days. You got to go to one year of college. It's like, yeah, the, 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 the multifamilies are by far better scalability and profitability, but you got to get started somewhere, right? And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize. They, they think that they're the one in a million, the Kevin Garnett's, the Kobe Bryant's that can make it right to the big stuff. And I'm like, dude, you don't have any value. You don't, you don't bring anything to the table. Your net worth isn't that great. I mean, I don't know how you're going to do it. You're just going to fail and, and never come back. And it's good to hear from you that, you know, you started with the small stuff. Yeah, I started small and, and part of it was just being conservative. At that time, I would have been too too uh, scared to to do a larger property because I wouldn't know how to, to manage it or handle it. And and I agree with you. I think I think you you need to develop a, your own personal track record. You know, I think starting small is a great way to go. Now there are some people who have been very successful in starting with multifamily and apartments. But quite often, they're successful because they either partnered with someone who had done it or they brought on a team that was very experienced to, to help them do it right. What are you working on these days? What's your current two-week experiment and a six-month project to kind of show people that you're working on things actively and, and you've got different projects well, I'm I'm working on like like I mentioned, I've got three three things I've done differently this past year. One is invest passively in an office building. That's kind of interesting because I don't have to do anything, <laughs> which is nice um, as, as a syndicator and the the designated agents of my the three syndications I've done. You know that that takes a a, a lot of work. So you know I'm staying on top of the money. Uh, I just got a call. It's interesting when you when you called me or when we connected here this morning, I just got in a call from my, one of my property managers that someone had broken in and stolen our security camera equipment. Uh, so, I, so when we get off of this call, I have to deal with that. So I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of day-to-day stuff, but I'm also branching out into uh, investing in notes passively. I'm not you know, forming the relationships or talking with the, the note holders but I have invested passively with someone who does do that. And, and I'm, that's kind of an experiment for me. So I, I bought two notes. Uh, one was about 25000 all in. That included back taxes and some legal fees. And we think that the, the value of the property at, at the low end is about 40000 If we can't work out a new uh, payment situation with the, the current owner, homeowner, uh, and we take over the property and sell it, that's probably about a 30% return in less than a year if we sell that because I'll be splitting whatever profit with, with um, the guy who's actually doing the work 50, 50. Uh, we also bought another note for about 16,500. And that, again, that's all, all in uh, legal. And um, I think some, some utility pay, back utility payments. And um, that one looks like it'll be worth, 50, 60 at the low end. So there'll be a nice little profit there uh, if, if we do sell it. Um, but of course, uh, you know, when you're buying these notes, you have to be sensitive to the, the people who live in the home and own the home and try to work out a situation where they can, you can take these non-performing notes and make them performing again. So some question that's kind of popped into my mind and, you know, I've been kind of dabbling in different things like self-storage and mobile home parks. 
things are outside of my forte of, of apartments. And you're kind of doing the same thing here. And we all know that, you know, they, they say like you should focus on your strengths and kind of double down on that stuff. But you know, what's your, what's your thought process on kind of branching out and, and trying other things? Are you, are you working with other people? Is that what's kind of happening here or? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you, I think you just kind of said it is focus on your strengths. And I've been focusing on my strengths for the past eight years when it comes to investing in real estate. And I've been kind of the primary driver when it, when it comes to putting together multifamily and apartment type deals, whether they be syndications or just joint ventures. And, and now I'm at the point where I'm focusing on other people's strengths. So with the office building, um, you know, that I'm focusing on the strength of the, uh, the tenant who was able to get a small business loan to, to buy and rehab their own office building. Uh, they just needed someone to bring in a little bit of extra equity. Uh, so I'm focusing on, on their strengths uh, with the notes. Uh, like I said, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't know the first thing about actually going out and talking to the special asset manager at a bank, negotiating the best deal on the notes and, and doing my due diligence. So I found someone who does do that very well and I'm investing in his strengths. And then the, the third thing I'm doing is the self storage facility. Uh, we're currently under contract to buy a self storage uh, facility, 185 units here in Michigan. And there again, this, this was brought to me by, by my partner who has the knowledge and had found the deal, negotiated the deal, and really just needed someone to come in and put, bring the equity to the deal. And, the, and, and, and in my case, the financial strength that would actually allow us to get a loan. So um, there again, I'm, I'm doing a little bit more work than, uh, than the other two, you know, the notes or the office building. But I'm really relying on my partner in this case and, and focusing on his strengths rather than my own. So is this sort of like an end game strategy once you've hit your, uh, you know, as, as investors, they call it the critical mass point where you sort of have enough, you've kind of put your oxygen mask on first and, um, you know, maybe you're just looking to be a passive or, you know, it's just kind of an end game strategy in your opinion. I wouldn't, I don't know that it's necessarily an end game. I mean, I, I, if I find another apartment deal to syndicate, um, if I find another multifamily, I'll do it and I'll drive that. Uh, so I, I'm still, I'm still willing to play that game. But as far as the, uh, you know, investing in other things, I do think that that is a new strategy for me is finding those people who are good at it and investing with them. And, and with, in the case of the notes or, or the self storage, Perhaps there's the opportunity later on down the road to syndicate some of those opportunities as well. So when it comes to raising the money, that is something that I, I think I could, I could really bring that piece to the equation. Um, but I do like the idea of working with other investors who are bringing that expertise and knowledge and finding the deals and doing a lot of the, the on-the-ground type work. The Hui Deal Pipeline Club is a free investor club where we work together to crowdsource deals and do due diligence together. Most members in our group graduate to passive investors, but some investors who I've built a relationship over the past few years have graduated to active operator status. To back our own members in something that they have found their true calling in, I'm rolling out simple passive cash flow lending. 
Learn more at simplepassivecashflow.com backslash lend or text the word money to 314-665-1767. Again, for more information, check out simplepassivecashflow.com backslash lend or text the word money to 314-665-1767. So what is your simple passive cash flow number that you're shooting for? And I imagine you had two times that what would be our ideal day detailed routine and what kind of projects do you be working on at that point? Well, the, the simple cash flow number that I'm mean, just very simply, if I had 200,000 a year in simple cash flow, I think that that, then I, I could, uh, you know, take, take a few more vacations <laughs> during the year. Uh, but I also have two kids who will be going to college in the next 10 years. So, um, when I think about that, I realize, well, I, you know, 200,000 might not cut it, uh, depending on where they go and uh, how long they're in college. So double that to 400, 500, I'd love to get there in a year or get there, you know, that amount per year. And uh, what, what was the rest of your, your Yeah, question? so say, say that happens and your kids are off to college and you have it. What, what would you be working on at that point? How, how would your day look? So my day would look probably very similar to how it looks now. I, I, I'm not one to want to just sit back and retire. Uh, I'd like to do a little bit more traveling, but I also want to stay active in the investments that I, I currently do have. I mean, I have, I, I, I've raised over $6 million from investors. I do have current syndications going on and, and uh, you know, I, I keep them updated and stay on top of the numbers and I would continue doing that. Uh, and also, I think that it's an exciting field that we're in. Real estate encompasses so many different things. And my wife and I are talking now about maybe doing some developing. We're looking at missing middle housing. And what does that really mean? What is missing middle housing? And when you look at what communities are doing to solve that, some are being very innovative, um, but others are just uh, clearly don't know how to solve that need for missing middle housing. So that's something where my wife and I both see a need and uh, we might, we might do a little bit of developing here in the future, but, but that's, you know, that, that may happen, that may not happen, but it's just one of the examples of different areas that, that we're interested in that we'd like to give it a try. Is that developing like class B or class C or D? Well, it's developed when you, so missing middle is different things to different people. You have this need for affordable housing. A lot of times it's it's called affordable housing. And what that, what's going on across the country and especially here in Grand Rapids right now is that the lower income people are being priced out of the rental market. Um, And that's a problem, but that's not what I'm talking about with missing middle. Missing middle actually has to do with bringing about more density to a neighborhood or a community without building large apartment buildings and without building like small homes. It's those in-betweeners. It's like, think about the courtyard apartments where you have maybe eight to 10 units or, or a duplex. A duplex could be middle housing. Uh, so if you, we own a duplex uh, here in Grand Rapids that uh, we are looking at maybe if we tore it down, is the lot big enough that we could fit in four, five units uh, right in the same amount of space that would fit in with the existing neighborhood, 
uh, and, and be built at a cost where we don't have to charge a class rates. And that, that's kind of, it's, it really starts with that challenge. And that question is, can that be done? And a lot of builders and developers will say, no, it can't. I mean, with today's construction costs, uh, it's going to cost you a certain amount per square foot and you have to charge a certain amount per square foot to make any sort of profit. And it's got to be for a class folks to. Yeah. And that, and so, so what you have with a lot of the new construction and the new development that's going on is it's all for a class renters, you know, the granite countertops, the stainless steel appliances, uh, the nice finishes where you're going to pay, uh, you know, top, top rates uh, over, you know, $1,400 for a one bedroom over $2,000 for for a two bedroom. I mean, that's a class, but, but you and I both invest in B and C class. We know that, that the widest demographic out there wants to be renting, you know, maybe seven to 900 for a one bedroom or 800 to, to 1100 for a two bedroom. I mean, that's, that's where most people can afford to rent and um, missing middle provides more of that type of housing. But the challenge is how do you build that missing middle uh, economically so that you can still make a profit by charging those, those, those lower rents? Right. Yeah, I think that's a great program. I think uh, all too often, you know, look at Asia. I mean, it's a very binary housing system. You either got really rich places or you got these huge 100, 200, 300 unit apartment really ugly buildings and it's just just not good for society i think especially like you know in america you got the micro homes too yeah and and i'm not talking micro homes you know i i mean it's it's something that's in between those those really rich single family homes and those huge apartments it's it's something in between and you see it it was built you know 40 50 60 years ago and you still see it in the communities but because of current zoning laws and, and restrictions and, and, and municipal codes and whatever, uh, it's sort of been phased out. And I think municipalities are starting to realize, hey, we need to bring this back in and, uh, and allow for it. It's just, uh, you know, anytime you deal with municipalities and city government, there's a lot of push and pull and a lot of red tape that you have to cut through. So that, that's the challenge. I'm not saying we know how to solve it or we figured out a way but we're looking into it and we're, we're asking that question and saying, Hey, you know, that's an interesting proposition. How, if we could do this, how would we do it? Yeah. Something I saw, um, and I've been seeing recently are these cardinal homes. And for those of you guys who don't know what that is, uh, I think back in the eighties or seventies, they would build these like apartment complexes, which, you know, kind of the stuff we're kind of looking now to buy, but it's very, uh, very minimalistic homes, uh, no frills. It, it kind of looks like military housing a little bit, but you're kind of thinking about making revamping the Cardinal home method. Yeah. Maybe taking some of that concept. I mean, one, I'm not even sure what we're thinking, but, but one of the things we've looked at is prefab homes, you know, and even shipping containers that can be kind of pieced together like, like Lego blocks. And they, they come already uh, outfitted with, with the flooring and the, you know, the walls and, and the finishes, and they're just kind of dropped into place. And, uh, yeah, that, that technology, that, that, that kind of concept can provide a lot of this missing middle, needed missing middle housing. Uh, it's just the question is, well, the, the municipalities uh, allow for it. 
All right. Fun question here. Something that you recently thought about burning your cash on for time savings or an improvement in quality of life. There's so many answers to that because I'm constantly burning my cash on things that save me time. Uh, I noticed actually you inspired me to do this. You use Calendly.com to schedule your podcast. And um, I actually went and signed up, signed up for that. And now all my podcast guests are scheduling on Calendly. And that's saving me so much time. And I just spent $80 for the year to, to be able to, to, to do that. You know, just having things like the Amazon Alexa. I love my Amazon Alexa and, and talking to it in the morning and asking it what's new and, and uh, what's the temperature. <laughs> so, so things like that. I, I, anything that has to do with technology that makes sense to me, um, I will spend money on it, to, if, it if I think it will save me time and, and effort. All right. So something that you recently changed your mind on, since I, I see a lot of uh, newer investors with very strong opinions, and I see very successful people with open minds, and probably have a hunch that you've probably changed your mind a few times. What is something that you've changed your mind on? <laughs> well, like I said, you know, this, just this past year, I've kind, of, uh, I've kind of gone from sitting on the, on the fence and not doing any deals because I thought everything was, was way overpriced and there might be a downturn to actually getting into some, some deals uh, that other people had put together, investing in other people. So that's, that's really a new mindset for me is, is uh, investing in other people's strengths. And I also try to ask myself, you know, what do I believe is true right now uh, that may turn out to not be true? And so often when I look back at my thoughts on interest rates, you know, for the past 15 years, I thought interest rates were going to skyrocket. And that has turned out to be uh, completely untrue. You know, I look at the market now and I say, well, is there, do I believe that there's going to be a downturn? And if I do, could that turn out to not be the case? Could things keep going up or plateau and just stay somewhat consistent? Consistent. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my mindset. My mindset is such that I don't really want to believe anything and be dogmatic about anything. I want to stay open-minded as much as I can on, on anything. So we, we asked you, you know, in the seller's market, what you're investing in, what would you suggest someone who doesn't have a very substantial level of cash flow yet, maybe not a huge net worth, what should they be doing? They should be finding deals, finding very good deals, uh, you know, getting their education, get, getting, doing their research, making sure that when they do find a good deal, they have something that they can bring to an investor who does have the money. Um, the self-storage deal that I'm doing right now. Uh, my partner who brought that to me did all the background work, you know, found the deal, negotiated with the sellers. Uh, he, he doesn't have the financial strength to get the deal done, bring the equity into the deal. And um, he brought it to me. I, I can help him with that. And I recognized, I look at a lot of deals um, and most of them I'm, I don't even want to uh, spend more than four minutes looking at, but I recognized right away that, Hey, he had found an, an excellent deal and um, we're going to get it done. We're going to close on it early next year. Yeah. I think that's the hardest part these days is the deal. And, you know, I, I tell people, Hey, you know, you, you might be looking at a one, two, three, fourplex, but don't limit yourself to anything bigger just because you don't think you have the experience with the money to close it. I mean, you can bring it to someone like yourself or me or anybody and, the right person will give you the right cut, which, what, what's fair. 
Absolutely. I, and I think, <clears throat> I, I think we've worked out a, a good arrangement uh, as far as that, that goes. I mean, he's going to make, he's going to make a lot of money without having to put any of his own money into it. Um, but it, there's also a component where people might, people starting out might think, okay, it's all about finding the deal or, or uh, it's all about the real estate, but it's not all about the real estate or the deal. It's about you as the person, you know, bringing, putting the deal together, uh, whether people can trust you, whether people want to invest in you. And um, it's also about presentation because when you bring a deal to a potential investor, you have to present it in a way that they can understand it. Because I've, I've looked at a lot of people who have brought deals and the numbers they show me just don't make any sense. And their explanations that they, you know, on, that they write in their, their little uh, package or whatever um, may not make sense. And I might find a lot of flaws and holes in it. So taking the time to really present your ideas and your, your vision for an investment, that makes a big difference as well. All right. So Brian, last question here. So Tony Robbins identifies two large concepts that are completely showing and gain perfection at. The first is the art of fulfillment, and the second is the science of achievement. So first, what is your secret or hack to the science of achievement? Any habits or morning or nighttime rituals to share? Um, habits would be just going for a walk whenever I need to clear my head and really think uh, through a challenge or a problem that I'm facing in in with any of my deals or anything in life, I, I go for a nice long walk. Uh, I have kids, so it's hard to find, <laughs> find time to, to meditate or, uh, you know, really focus when they're, when they're home from school. Um, but going for a nice long walk, that makes a big difference. And uh, your secret or hack to the art of fulfillment, how do you contribute back? A lot of the same way you do is hosting a podcast for real estate investors. You know, I, both of us have in mind, investors who may be just starting out and want to do it, but haven't done it yet. And um, we're both do weekly podcasts. So you, you, we know that it takes a lot of time to put these together and um, we're sharing information that when I started out back in 2000, I was paying five to $10,000 for this type of information. Now you can get it for free by listening to our podcast. So I do that. I also, um, I'm also a uh, Cub Scout, Weeblow, uh, soon-to-be Boy Scout leader. Uh, so I, I get back that way, and then I do a little bit of um, volunteering uh, when, I, when I'm able to. That's something that early in the, in the interview you mentioned, that you're looking for 20,000 passive, and I think that resonates with a lot of listeners. That it's not just some ridiculous number. Some people will come on here and say, $100,000 and I'm like $100,000 you know a year and I'm like no they'll say like a month and like oh my god like the hell do you need all that money for right I mean I mean so you're definitely down to earth like what's what's kind of a way that you feel like $20,000 is enough how do you uh how do you make that 20,000 a month is enough um because I I have a bookkeeper who does uh my P&L every month does my balance sheet every month I know on average, how much uh, my, uh, myself and my family spends, you know, and that could be on our mortgage, on healthcare, everything. And I know what a comfortable cushion would be if we could make a little bit more than that. And uh, that's right around 20000 a month. And there's no need to 2X that or 5X that lifestyle? 
I would like to, I, when I look out ahead and I look at the, the cost for, for college, like I, like I said, for my kids, um, I probably do need to two X that <laughs> who knows? I don't know who knows what college is going to cost or if maybe it'll be free by the time they go. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that that's a comfortable amount to, 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 uh, not have to worry about money in the immediate term, but definitely, uh, when I take into account some of the larger expenses that I can see down the road, I'll need to, to, to X that at some point. All right, Brian, anything uh, we missed? Want to get your contact information out there for me to get a hold of you? Um, well, listen to the rental property owner and real estate investor podcast. You know, it's uh, geared for very much the, the same type of listener that who listens to your show lane. And if you want to learn more about me, you can go to higinvestor.com. That's H I G investor.com. And that's about it. I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not raising money right now. I'm not looking for, for new investors, but uh, feel free to get in touch with me and uh, you know, I'd be happy to answer any questions. All right. Yeah. Like I said, I listened to the podcast and uh, thanks for uh, coming on, Brian. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, Lane. I always enjoy talking with you. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.